Well, good morning, and uh, it's a pleasure, as always, to uh, visit again and to uh, bring God's Word to you. Um, one of the things I really enjoy about my current role of being a, kind of a traveling preacher, as my grandson calls me, is uh, not only to preach God's Word, but I feel like I'm giving the opportunity for pastors to get away and get a break. And I think that's really important, and I'm just happy to have a little part of that. And I'm glad that Pastor Will and his family can get away and uh, pray that they will return to you refreshed. My text this morning will be familiar to many of you. Uh, <clears throat> first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, which many of you will know is Paul's wonderful um, unfolding of the resurrection of Christ uh, and its importance and its centrality in the, in the, uh, in the Christian faith. And uh, these first 11 verses are really uh, a gospel reminder. Paul uses that word to, to describe it. And uh, then let us hear these important words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still asleep, or most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God, that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let us pray. We thank you for this magnificent passage. We thank you for Paul's unfolding for us of the gospel. May we be reminded once again, and as we are, to receive and rest on Christ as he is offered to us in that gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Reminders are an important and unavoidable part of life, aren't they? If you're raising children or you've raised children, you know that reminders are a regular part of your parental uh, job, isn't it? You're always, and, and why is it the little boys always seem to be, need more reminding than little girls? I don't know. That's just an observation. I can't explain it, but it does seem to be the case. I have even heard that in some marriages, wives must remind their husbands sometimes of things that they've... I've just heard that. Heard that said. <clears throat> of course, in the workplace, there's no end of reminders from management, sometimes to the irritation of employees, reminders about policies and everything else. Um, and so it shouldn't surprise us when we open our Bibles... And we find God reminding his people. And he does so on a regular basis. Check that theme out, beginning with Moses 
and all the prophets and running all the way through the New Testament. Sometimes it's put in a negative way. Sometimes God is saying, don't forget these things. Don't forget me. But always to remember. And that encourages me as a preacher of God's word because so much of it is reminding people in a sense of what they know, but that we need to hear again. I'm a great believer, along with Luther, that you really can't hear the gospel too often. Um, it really can't be overstated. I remember, uh, maybe it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, a statement I read by him. He said, when I was a young pastor, I was afraid that I would repeat myself. And now as an old pastor, I'm afraid that I won't. I totally get that. And whatever time is left to me in preaching, I want to remind people of the important things, of what Paul calls the first things here in his passage. So let me break this down under three headings this morning as we look at these verses. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, I want you to see a gospel reminder. And then in verses 3 through 7, I want you to see a gospel deliverance. And in verses 8 through the end of the passage, I want you to see a gospel testimony. So first of all, a gospel reminder. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. I'm not telling you something you don't know. I'm not telling you something new. But I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you. Just in passing, a simple point, but an important one. God's gospel is intended to be preached. I think we can lose sight of that in this day and age when there's so much technology that can make spectacular presentations of things. And that technology has its place. But God's intention is that his word be preached as foolish as it may seem. That his basic method is for a man to stand in front of a group of people and open up the Bible and talk to them and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how Paul says to the Corinthians, that's how the gospel came to you. It was preached, it was proclaimed, it was heralded. And then Paul gives them kind of a spiritual history. He doesn't get to the content of the gospel quite yet, but he gives them their relationship with the gospel, and he says several interesting things about that. He says, this gospel which you received... And my mind immediately goes to the shorter catechism definition of faith, which I think is a great one, which says that saving faith is a grace of God by which we receive and rest on Christ as he's offered in the gospel. We don't do anything. We don't accomplish anything. We receive and rest on Christ as he's offered in the gospel. That, says Paul, is what happened to you. And in which you stand. The gospel is not just something we believe once, but becomes a standing place for us for life. Paul says, having been justified by faith, uh, we have peace with God and our entrance into this grace in which we stand. Just be reminded of that. If you're a Christian, if you receive and rest on the gospel, you stand in his grace. And that can never be, you can never be ungraced. You've been justified. There is no condemnation ever for you in Christ. And you are adopted. God only will not ever put you, not put you out of his family, 
but he welcomes you and embraces you with love. How sweet is that? And notice, Paul also reminds us of the present tense of the gospel, uh, by which you are being saved. Many covenant children grow up. My kids would be the same. They'd look back on their lives and say, I really never knew a day when I didn't trust the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's wonderful. Kids can say that. Some others, like me, you can kind of point to a time when the Lord began to work in your life and brought you to salvation. But the point is not to put the the, the weight of our confidence in an experience we had many years ago. But the gospel is something by which you are being saved. God is still proceeding to work out his salvation in our lives daily. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul echoes this very theme. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's quite legitimate for a Christian to stand up and say, I have been saved. It's also quite legitimate for a Christian to stand up and say, I am being saved. God is still working out that process. And then Paul says, keep it that way. He says, this gospel by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Vanity is a big theme in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul was saying, if this gospel of the resurrection of Christ isn't true, then we are pathetic. We believed in vain, and we're still in our sins. But here he says, make sure you hold fast to this gospel that was preached to you. That's not to say that the working out of our salvation ultimately rests on us, because it doesn't. It's a work of God's grace. Thanks be to God. But nevertheless, the gospel should be a daily reality in each of our lives. It should be precious and sweet to us each day. We should hold it fast uh, as God does his work of, of saving and works that out in our lives. So, there you have a gospel reminder in which Paul reminds them of their relationship, of the parameters of that relationship that they have to the gospel, the good news. Now in verses 3 through 7, he turns to the content of the gospel, of what the gospel actually is. And I would call this a gospel deliverance. What I mean by deliverance here is not we've been delivered from something, that's true, but a deliverance is an authoritative declaration of something. And that's the sense in which Paul gives that to us. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Um, Sometimes we can fall into thinking that we somehow are to be creative when it comes to the gospel and sort of it's to be the the task of each generation of the church to sort of create the gospel anew. What a terrible idea. But I think that has some purchase to us because we live in times where people are told they can reinvent themselves all the time. But Paul doesn't take that view of the gospel. He says the gospel is something delivered to you. It was the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, If you, I heard Pastor Will attended the General Assembly. 
And after the General Assembly, you can always look at a record of the acts and deliverances of the General Assembly. That is to say, the authoritative statements they have made about something, hopefully biblically based. Paul uses this word deliverance a couple other places in Corinthians. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. As I gave you this authoritative proclamation, this deliverance which you've received. Chapter 11, verse 23, well-known words about the Lord's Supper. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. He's not saying, this is my opinion. You kind of work out the Lord's Supper the way you feel led to do it. It's not what he's saying. I delivered to you what I received from the Lord about the Lord's Supper. Practice it that way. Understand it that way. And of course, uh, at the heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself, the sinless Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity. But Paul talks about four specific things that happened to Christ which, which summarize the substance of the gospel. And I want to briefly highlight them. He says that Christ died. Christ was buried. He was raised on the third day. And he appeared to more than 500 people. And each of those is so important. Paul says, first of all, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There we have verse 3. And by the way, notice how he says, I'm giving to you what is of first importance. The church ought always to think about its priorities and what's really important. I love it when the Bible comes right out and says what the priorities ought to be. Here, there's really no doubt. He tells us what's of first importance, and it is to get the gospel right to get to understand the gospel, to formulate it correctly, and to accept no substitutes is really what he's saying. So, first point, he says, is that Christ died for our sins. Notice how this is a combination of history, theology, and biblical witness. First of all, Christ died. That's history. That's an objective event in space and time. And I think it's important to go back to that and to remember that. The gospel is not a mystical experience. The gospel is not primarily about my experience or even about how I got saved, though that's sweet and that's important. No, it's a historical fact that Christ died. But now, what are we going to do with that fact? What do we do about the fact that Christ died? We need an authoritative interpretation of it. We need an authoritative, here's a word some people don't like, theology. And that theology is, Paul says, Christ died for our sins. There have been many interpretations of the death of Christ. Make no mistake about them. People continue to produce them. Uh, Christ, the tragic martyr, Jesus, the king wannabe who ran afoul of the Romans. Uh, the Mormons have their view of the death of Christ. There are many theologies of the death of Christ. And you may not like theology, but I'll tell you this, you either have a good theology or a bad one. Everyone is a theologian. And 
how about the Holy Spirit's word about what Christ's death means? I think the Holy Spirit is a pretty good interpreter of the death of Christ. Wouldn't you agree? And so in the interpretation of the death of Christ, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, Christ died for our sins. That is to say, Christ died as a substitute on Calvary's cross, bearing the sins that we deserve. There are many things that are true about us. We are weak. We are broken. We are confused. We are estranged in many of our relationships. And the gospel speaks to all of those things and to many more. But those things I've just said are not the gospel unless and until we embrace the depth and danger of our sins. We will never understand or appreciate the gospel. Until we understand the dire straits that we are in because of our sins, our violations and falling shorts of God's law, we will never be able to understand and appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, says Paul, this is abundantly supported by scriptural witness. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And what he's saying here, among other things, is this interpretation of Christ's death is no afterthought. It's not something that simply the early church sort of came up with, that Christ died for our sins. It has been the witness of Scripture from the beginning. And on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, the Lord Jesus Christ came to his disciples, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them all the things in the Scriptures concerning himself. And along with many, I think, I would love to sit under that seminar. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I mean, would that not be amazing to sit at Jesus' feet and to hear him unpack the scriptures about all the things that related to him? Well, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That's at the heart of the gospel. Secondly, Christ truly died. Uh, and, And I think that's illustrated by the fact that he was buried. So he, was di- he died, he was buried, and it's interesting that in the Apostles' Creed, among the other things we confess, we confess that Christ was buried. Well, why would it be important to, to confess that? We get the idea that he died for our sins, but why is it important to say that he was buried? Well, for one thing, it demonstrates that he truly died, that it wasn't some kind of hoax, that it wasn't some sort of fake experience. It shows us that he truly did die. But also, and I'm indebted to Tarsi Sproul for this, I was recently, recently listening to a sermon by him, and he said, what would have normally happened to, to Roman criminals who were crucified? Well, in Jerusalem, their bodies would have been burned on the garbage heap of Gehenna. That's what would have happened. That didn't happen to Jesus. He was buried uh, at some risk. And some, uh, it was buried in a very nice tomb, which shows that there was honor shown to Jesus, a special honor in his death. And then, of course, we come to what we conceive of as, as the heart, really, of, of what Paul says, and it's really what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, is that Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And about all the things we can say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is it vindicates his death. It is God's approval. It is God saying mission accomplished. Christ's 
uh, sacrifice for our sins was effective. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 4, verse 25, Paul says that he was raised for our justification. And the scriptures bear eloquent witness to that. Don't have time to spend a lot of time thinking about this, but I just want to remind you of the kind of the locus classicus of, of the Old Testament vision of the resurrection, which is quoted several times by the apostles. Psalm 16, verse 10. David says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy ones see corruption. David himself had some assurance of a resurrection. You will not deliver my soul to Sheol or allow your Holy One to see corruption. But the apostles say, who is he really talking about? Who is really in view in Psalm 16, verse 10? That's the Lord Jesus Christ who will be raised from the dead according to the scriptures. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. The heart of the gospel it would still be possible for a critic to kind of use a hermeneutics of suspicion so far and say, well, that's what that little cult of Christians believed. Yeah, they had in their minds that, yeah, Jesus died and he, he was buried and he rose again. That's sort of a cultic, mystical view of things. But Paul challenges that because then he makes a very public statement as if to say, and if you don't believe me, Go ask those who saw him. Because after he rose from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. So much of truth in our lives is accepted on the basis of testimony. If you're on a jury for a murder trial, you were not present when the murder allegedly took place. All you have is testimony. And the whole trial is about you believe the testimony or you don't. That's how you decide. During this whole COVID debate, people's response to this, the whole thing was, do you believe the scientists or you don't? Do you accept what they say or, or not? And I'm not getting into that debate, but that's what it comes down to. You and I didn't go into the laboratories and do the tests. We either believe what was being said or we don't, and we act accordingly. It's the same thing with faith. Faith is receiving and resting on testimony that's given to us. And Paul's testimony is especially credible because he says, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you can go ask just about 500 people who bore witness to the resurrection. I go to the gym, and one of the things I do is I lift weights, and I would, un- I would underline the word lightweights. If I wanted to deceive you, I could say, yeah, I'm benching 250 pounds now. I can bench press that. And, uh, but if I wanted to deceive you, I wouldn't dare say, uh, you can just go to the gym and then the people that are there around me when I lift, you can just ask them. Because I would be immediately exposed as a fraud. But think about what Paul says about Jesus appearing to more than 500 people is he's not afraid of being exposed as a fraud. He's saying, go ask them. They saw him. And I think that gives us very credible, um, <clears throat> very credible basis for faith. And again, 
want to impress upon you, I'm not just standing up here going through an intellectual exercise. Paul will go on to say, if these things are not true, then we are still in our sins. Jesus said the most horrifying thing that it could ever be said to people. He said, unless you repent, you will die in your sins. You will die under the judgment of God. You will die without hope under the wrath of God. If these things are not true. So Paul pleads with us and reminds us that these things are very truth. A gospel reminder. A gospel deliverance. And finally... I'll be as brief as I can, this gospel testimony. Because Paul doesn't just leave it here with his, histor- his history or his theology. As he's always willing to do, he gives his own testimony to the glory of God. We know how he does that at least three times in the book of Acts. He hints at it in other uh, of his epistles. And here he goes again. After Jesus appeared to the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. One of the things that strikes me about this testimony is Paul's certainty. He is absolutely certain that the risen Christ appeared to him. And all true faith has a seed of certainty. We can doubt. Our faith can wax and wane. It can grow. It can get smaller. All that's true. And you can still be a true believer with imperfect faith, with weak faith. However, all true faith has at least a core, a seed of certainty in which we can say, in other words that Paul used, I know whom I have believed. Paul everywhere manifests that certainty. And then in verse 9, his humility. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Before the All-Star Game, on the night before the baseball All-Star Game, they have the Home Run Derby. I don't know if anybody besides me in the world watched it, but I did. I have fond memories of that as a kid. But you see these great sluggers and see who can hit the most home runs. Well, the winner of the Home Run Derby, the guy who hit the most home runs, was a guy from the Mets. He was interviewed afterwards, and he really wasn't very humble. He said, yeah, I'm the greatest uh, power hitter on the planet. That's what he said. I thought about that later. Well, maybe that's true, actually. It could actually be true. He might be the greatest power hitter on the planet. He wasn't especially humble. But I got to thinking about Paul. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I think he could have said with truth, I'm the greatest of the apostles. I mean, if you think about the influence that the man has had, through his writings and preaching on millions of believers throughout history, yeah, I think there's an argument to be said, made to say that I was the greatest of the apostles, but that's not what strikes him. He says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because of my sin, because I persecuted the church of God. Sometimes I think we don't think that seriously about our sin. We don't think we're really that bad. We don't think we've really been forgiven a whole lot, perhaps. I wonder if we ever say to ourselves, I'm not worthy to be a Christian. The only reason I'm a Christian is because of the saving grace of God and his son who died on the cross for me. And finally, and this really is finally, Paul also in his testimony talks about efficacious grace. And I love this, and I hope you do too. By the grace of God, 
I am what I am. All of that sin is true. I totally disqualified myself from being an apostle and even a Christian. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace wasn't just a word. It wasn't just a statement. It wasn't just a fact. It was a power that worked in me and changed my life, he said. There's a lot of talk today about our identity and what our identity is and where identity comes from. This is a pretty great statement of identity, and I hope you can say the same thing. With all my weaknesses and all my flaws and all my past history, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Thanks be to God. And his grace to me was not in vain. Speaking of bragging, which I mentioned earlier, some people may think Paul then is bragging because he says, contrary, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And I don't think he's bragging here. He's embodying what Jesus said, that those who've been forgiven much love much. And I wonder sometimes if we don't love Jesus as much as we should because we forget how much we've been forgiven. Or maybe never grasped just how deep our sin was. Paul is saying, I worked harder than any of them because I was so grateful for the grace of God. And yet it really wasn't me doing the work. It was God who was at work within me. Thanks be to God. I pray that this gospel reminder will be of help to you.